0: And I think a lot of times, if we're really trying to make our businesses better, understanding the business that we're in and what is the business trying to solve? What is that problem that they're trying to solve? Then working back into what is my role trying to solve within that business?
1: Technology is transforming how we think, how we lead, and how we win. From InterVision, this is Status Go!, the show helping IT leaders move beyond the status quo, master their craft, and propel their IT vision. Hello, and welcome to Status Quo. I'm your host, Jeff Tunn. Megan Schaefer, our amazing executive producer, and I are always on the lookout for interesting guests and topics to help you break out of the status quo. Today, we are going to mix together the Chicago Bears, the Philadelphia Eagles, a police detective, the Merrill Lynch Call Center, and we're going to add an oatmeal raisin cookie or two, baked for seven or eight years, and we will end up with an amazing story, some terrific insights into approaching IT, and our guest, Cornelius George. Cornelius, or Corn, as his friends call him, is the co-founder and CEO of Chuck Lab, a startup that is helping police solve and prevent crime by utilizing untapped data. A warning to Megan, this episode may run a bit longer than normal. So welcome to the show, Corn. Uh, Can I call you that, man? Yeah, you can. You definitely can, Jeff. Thank you. (laughs) All right. I'm looking forward to this conversation. When we talked a few weeks ago, we started talking about Crime Miner, the, the app that Chuck Lab has created. But in the course of that conversation, we learned more about your story. So I'd like to flip that sequence on its head and start with your story first. So how does someone born in Liberia, educated at one of the top schools in the U.S., begin their career on Wall Street and end up in Indiana founding a tech startup?
0: <laughs> well, uh, by a lot of luck, a lot of perseverance and, and a lot of ambition, I guess you know, I came to the United States in 1989. So I grew up most of my life here. And, you know, I was fortunate enough to attend a Milton Hershey School. Milton Hershey School is a school for underprivileged children, really giving you the opportunity to transcend your environment, if you will. Coming out of Philadelphia, I, I spent a lot of time doing a lot of the nerdy things, right? There was this thing called the John Hopkins Center for Talented Youth, right? Where they found they kids who had scored high on these standardized tests and send them to the SAT programs, and then there were these summer camps. But I just couldn't afford it. So going to Milton Hershey School was a great opportunity for me to really get the resources to back my ambition and the things that I wanted to accomplish. And that led to me wrestling and, and achieving some academic milestones that I needed to achieve and ended up at Franklin and Marshall College, as you mentioned, one of the, one of the best schools in the country. And, and that was a blessing. Um, You know, I was surrounded by people I've never come to know, right? People from, you know, Greenwich, Connecticut. I don't know if you know where Greenwich is, but if someone has a house there, they have a couple of dollars in the bank, right? (laughs) Um, And I was surrounded by some really cool people and, and, you know, some really smart people that had, you know, talented connections to family and stuff on Wall Street. And this is funny because when I graduated from college, you know, I, I didn't have any of those connections. I didn't know how to get a job in all these places, but I knew I wanted to work for Merrill Lynch. And I knew someone that was working at the Merrill Lynch Call Center in well, was Hamilton, New Jersey, but they call it Princeton. And I sent my application in and, and I got an interview. And, you know, all my friends were coming back from New York and they were talking about their, uh, their adventures and, and their interview processes and the signing bonuses that they had gotten. And so when I'm interviewing for this position... You know, it's a cost in a position, right? Um, right, right? It's so naive now, right? But, you know, during the interview, I'm asking about a signing bonus. And they're like, what, what are you talking about? <laughs> you know, I'm like, wait, I thought everyone that works at Merrill Lynch gets a signing bonus. But, you know, it wasn't that. It, it was it was not as glamorous as I expected it to be or what I thought it was going to be. It wasn't what a lot of my friends had, but you know what? Mm-hmm. My foot was in the door. And from day one, I started studying and working my way up and really just excelling and taking pride in my work. Within a year... And I was able to move into a assistant vice president position, which was a huge jump. The funny part about that is one of my bosses actually interviewed for the job that I ended up getting. Oh, wow. Um, <laughs> so, that, so that really was a great opportunity. And to this day, I still thank Amrit Walia, who was the, the leader that gave me that opportunity. And, you know, she was a great leader. Just taught me a lot about leadership and how, you know, how to be a servant leader and, and that you're leading not from not from a whip but more from a carrot how can i help you be a better person so in 2009 the market was crashing and they were laying people off all around me and so uh when i was offered a promotion uh, one of the places that i had an opportunity to choose was indiana so i chose indiana um actually um we're coming up on the anniversary right about 12 years ago and i ended up liking it and just never never looked back right that was actually mm-hmm. Three days before my birthday, so that was a really interesting time. But moved here was a VP of banking at Merrill Lynch, and then I made the transition to Raymond James, where I was a regional VP there. But as time grew, I realized that you know the love and the lustre and the desire that I had for the industry was not there anymore, and I was spending a lot of my private time researching cybersecurity, learning mm-hmm. about cybersecurity. You know, I'd even put in the um, my resume uh, at Rook Security, which we'll come back around here on that in a second. Yeah, yeah. but Uh, I I really found that my passion was really in cybersecurity and was in technology in general. And it wasn't in the banking world or the finance world anymore. So in 2015, I decided that it was time for me to move on to something different. And that started my summer. Well, that was my last day at Raymond James was the Friday before Memorial Day weekend. And I was planning on going to the 500. Now, this is hilarious because I wrestled. I At the time, I was a professional fighter as a hobby. Uh, So I've done all (laughs) these kind of brutish sports. Right. And the morning of the 500, wouldn't you know it, I tear my quad tendon, which is an amazingly destructive injury. The tough part about it was how it happened. It happened while running to getting an Uber to (laughs) head to the Indy 500. Um, And, you know, and unfortunately or fortunately, whatever you want to look at it, I grew up with like a very high pain tolerance um, and, and, you know, I play sports where my coaches would say, are you hurt? or Are you injured? Um, if you're hurt, you just feel a little bit of pain. You keep going. If you're injured and you can't play anymore. Right. It was just kind of that, that tough grit. So I felt like I was just hurt that day. Uh, so I went to the 500 and spent the whole time there and, and uh, you know, I ended up having to take a very expensive Uber ride, AKA an ambulance out of the 500 oh, at man. the end of the day. Yeah. Yeah. But that was a tough time in my life for me because, you know, now I was just out of the industry where I was making good money and now yeah. I was not doing anything and I was bedridden, couldn't really walk, I had to have some multiple surgeries and trying to redo my knee and things got really dark there for a while, went through a little bit of a, of a depressive phase and I, and I couldn't figure out where the clarity was coming, right, where it would come from. And one day I got in my car and I just drove to Chicago and back and I felt great. And i didn't realize that over the years i spent a lot of time on the road and that was my zen space i got to listen to podcasts and audio books and so not being able to do that again was probably adding a lot to that to that stress that i was having um i started doing that and then i started realizing that i wasn't getting any replies from anyone in the technology world right my resume just didn't make sense how's this guy a vp Regional VP in banking now wants to have an entry-level position in tech. In tech, yeah. At the time, I realized Ubering was a great opportunity for me to meet people because I had no one in my Rolodex that was in the IT world, that was in technology. So I started Ubering specifically around the times when I knew that consultants were either leaving the city or coming into the city. Yeah, I met a lot of great people, and I ended up meeting one lady that was, uh, she was working closely with the CEO here in town as her personal PR person, and we talked about this podcast that I listened to, and and she really enjoyed the podcast, and she told me about, and I told her my story, and she mentioned to me about TechPoint, and that TechPoint had this sales boot camp that was specifically designed for people changing careers. So I was right on that. I hopped on the website, and, you know, quickly... Um, I I know you know the the boot camp very well. Your son was part of the organization as well, future alumni as well. I sent my resume in and didn't hear back from them for a while. And I actually didn't know what was going on. So I actually went to the office one morning uh, with my daughter, baby at the time on my little baby harness. And, And it turns out that for some odd reason, the website was wrong. I was applying earlier than it was even, it wasn't supposed to be up. So I'd Uh applied too early, but got into that program. And, you know, one of the things I asked about early was, can I get a job at Rook Security? Would that be okay? And Rook Security was not part of the cohort at the time. And they were like, sure, I guess. All right. But I I knew I wanted to work for Rook Security since I read an article about some of the cool things that they were doing. And I went through that program, did the best I could do and, and really tried to shine. Luckily, I caught the eye of a guy named Jim Brown and made an introduction to the CEO of Rook Security. And- after that first meeting, he was like, you know, JJ Thompson was like, you know, if I made you an offer right now, would you accept it? And I took that offer, right? I was like, yeah, yeah, no. yeah,
1: yeah. Yeah, you, you'd wanted the job for for several years by then. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. yeah so I'm going to take it. Uh, so I took that job, right? Uh, and and I started and I worked and I really enjoyed my time with Rook Security and and I enjoyed my time in the cybersecurity world and just learning about technology. But you know, I've always had an entrepreneurial spirit. And I always wanted to really do something to to really change the world and make an impact in some way that was that was meaningful. And I thought that starting a company would be great, but I didn't just want to just start a company. Um, I've been through, you know, so many trials and tribulations and I learned a lot about what I really wanted. Right. And, you know, to say sometimes, you know, when you go deep into that abyss kind of thing, you really find out Mm -hmm. who you really are. Right. Yeah. Um, Yeah. and, And so. I just kept learning about all different types of technology. Now I had an excuse to just learn about AI and and machine learning and you know cybersecurity and cryptocurrency and you know blockchain and everything else. I just I just engulfed it all and I wanted to start a company that would take some of that knowledge and put that to use. But I didn't want to just start with just I'm going to build a company. Right. So what I did right. was I sat back and I created a kind of a Venn diagram or a checklist of things, whatever you want to call it. But it was four things that were really key to me, four pillars that had to be for, for me to start a company. Number one, it had to be something that I was passionate in, right? Because starting a company sucks, right? It's terrible yeah, a lot of yeah. times, right? And, and you know, I've learned that if you lose your passion for something, you just don't put in the same amount of effort. Uh, number two, it had to be something that changed the world. be it my world, the world at large, the entire globe, something that made an impact that really changed things, right? And that flows to that Maslow hierarchy of needs and looking for you know, legacy and those types of things. Mm-hmm. The third thing is it had to be something that was kind of a simple idea when you solved it. And when you said you're solving this problem, people would say, yeah, that makes sense. Or why hasn't it been done before? Or why isn't it being done better, right? Something like that, that was yeah, just scalable. Yeah. And then the fourth thing was it had to be a company that could be profitable.
1: Yeah. So you're sitting there at Rook Security yeah, and you you just finished the TechPoint boot camp and you're already thinking at that point that you've got that entrepreneurial spirit. Mm -hmm. You want something more. I love that you sat down and thought about those four keys to, in your mind, a successful startup. But I got to ask you, where do the bears and the eagles come into this?
0: Yeah. So that's exactly where it came in. I mean, you're teeing it up perfectly, right? So with those four pillars, I went out and did something that was absolutely absurd. I just started asking every single person that I could, you know, strangers, I'd be on airplanes, I'd ask people these questions, uh, friends, family, everyone. I just kept asking people, what is something that you wish, what is an issue that you wish someone would solve for you? What is a problem that you have someone will solve for you? And some variation of that, right? Because I believe that starting a good company starts first with a problem, right? And so I'd ask people these questions. I'd find things that had three of the four, right? But none of them had it all. And I'm a huge Eagles fan, and one of my buddies is a huge Bears fan. And the Eagles are playing the Bears in in the uh, NFC Championship game. Uh, A lot of Bears fans are going to be mad about this. Not my problem. so we were gonna watch the watch it at either an Eagles bar, which is Hoagie's and Hops, or we're gonna go to Fat Dance, which is a Bears Bar. I decided, you know what, I'll go into the lines then, if you will, right? Because Eagles fans are just terrible people uh in general. <laughs> I mean, we know it, we know it, right? So let's just go to the Bears Bar. Um, so we go to the bear, we go to the Fat Dance, and his buddy shows up um before he does. And I met the guy before, once, I think before, but never really had a chance to really talk to him. And he we got he got there early, we're talking, and then of course, I'm going to ask him this question.
1: Yeah.
0: What's a problem that you have that you wish someone would solve? Now, Jeremy's a detective, and right off the bat, he said, "Corn, you know what? I listen to way too many jail phone calls. So like, it takes way too much time for me to listen to these calls. I can search everything else. I can search all these different databases and search all these things to find these terms and things that I'm looking for, but I can't search a phone call." And, and it seemed so simple because I had learned about different forms of where NLP, natural language processing is going and the capabilities that are out there and existing. And I thought to myself, this is all. Now, we went into this kind of vaudeville act where I was like, you guys have this. I'm like, they have this for police already. And he's like, no, they don't. I guess like, they do, you know, back and forth. It was that simple, right? So that's the third pillar. And, you know, growing up as a nerd in Philadelphia, you know, I got into a lot of physical altercations. And not that I was looking for it, just that people sometimes don't like nerds, right? Mm-hmm. It just happens like that. Yeah. Um, and I had to defend myself a lot coming from the library, coming from school. I get I get the top grade in the class. Somebody's upset about it and things like that. So I, I realized that there's nerds like me right now growing up in neighborhoods around here that they don't get beat up anymore. They get killed. Yeah. yeah. They get killed. Yeah. The violence that, that's happening is really putting kids in a situation where they're not able to think about their future and things like that. So this was something I was passionate about. And so I went home and just researched it, noticed that there wasn't anyone doing it. And it architected it, really kind of figured out how it could work, looked and saw what was out there, what are the opportunities for it. And then once I believed in it, I went on a mission to find people that were smarter than me, that mm-hmm. were able to, uh, able to actually create this thing. And I was able to do that in finding my co-founder, Blaine Durker. And that's how we got here. So that's how that's how the Bears and the Eagles come into play,
1: and and this is the the app that I mentioned in, in the intro of Crime Miner, right? I mean, that's what yeah, you guys Crime Minor.
0: tell us a little bit more about what it does. So, Crime Miner is very simple. Crime Miner takes jail phone calls and other audio files that law enforcement has, and It transcribes it so it makes transcription readily available for them so they have all the transcriptions that they can have from from those audio in a matter of minutes in some cases Mm -hmm. seconds and then it makes it searchable so you can take you know you can have an investigation where you have over 40 hours of audio and you're Mm -hmm. looking for one or two words to solve a crime that could that could really be detrimental or, or really impactful to the case Right. And now someone has to go listen to those 40 hours of jail phone calls just to find that. That's a lot. Yeah. That's a full week's worth of work that someone has to do in order to be able to pull out that data. And sometimes they just can't do it. So what we do is we allow them to be able to search for all of those key terms that may be pertinent to the investigation in those 40 hours of phone calls and underneath three minutes. Right. And so that's only part of it. Right. So we can take they can ingest all of those phone calls and we can be able to process those. But It goes a little bit deeper than that in that there's a lot of crime being committed on the street. There's a lot of evidence that's actually on these jail phone calls. Right. But you have a county like Marion County that has over eight hundred and fifty hours of jail phone calls per day. Yeah, Yeah. There's no way anyone can listen to all of those. So there's all kinds of things that, you know, you're talking about witness tampering, murders, hiding evidence. Inmate suicide, right? Because you also have to protect the inmates as well. There's all these things that no one has insights to right now because we just don't have the resources to be able to listen to all these phone calls. Crime minor allows law enforcement to have the ability to be able to tap into all of that data.
1: So these are, these are phone calls that are being made. Uh, someone's incarcerated mm-hmm. for some reason. And these are their phone calls to back out to the outside world while they're in there.
0: Yeah, yeah. So these calls are already recorded, right? Yeah, That's the thing yeah. They're already recorded. They're already there. They already exist. And there was a news um, report that was done by Wish TV, I believe, in uh, 2014 or 2013, that was highlighting how big this problem was. Right. Mm-hmm. They were able to, you know, catch a convicted murderer that was trying to pretend like he was mentally ill so that he wouldn't go to jail for murder. Another guy admitted to having the gun, right? And they were able to find the mm-hmm. weapon because of it another inmate was actually threatening his ex-girlfriend that he had beaten close to death to not show up to court. And they were able to find all this evidence on it. So there's all of this evidence there, Mm -hmm. but nobody's able to listen to it all.
1: So where are you guys in the startup process now? Are you early on? Are you in beta? Kind of where are you in all that mix?
0: So we're in beta right now um we we have our first beta cohort going on right now we had some really really incredible feedback um you know we've done over 500 interviews with with those in law enforcement to really make Mm -hmm. sure that we're getting this right because one of the issues that we found as we started going into this space is that the tech startup world in general typically do not start companies for law enforcement it's -hmm. it's a rarity right a company like mine being in you know some of these spaces is very rare so the focus on technology for law enforcement ha- has been, we built this here, take it. We wanted to take the approach that everyone takes, right? The the Ubers take, right? And, and the Netflix takes and goes and asks their customers, what is it that you're trying to do? How are you trying to accomplish this? What is the job to be done? And mm-hmm. then build something based on that. And that's what we've been doing for a long time. And so started our first cohort in beta, got some great response from that. And now we're moving into our second cohort because we feel as if That the more people we get to try this, the more data points we have in making sure that we have the right technology and we're doing it properly um, and doing it justice when we get to market.
1: And you guys are bootstrapping this, right? You haven't gotten outside investors yet.
0: Yet. We were originally planning on fully bootstrapping, um, you know. but once we went through the G-Beta Accelerator, when we started that g Bill Accelerator, it became apparent to us very quickly that in order for us to scale, in order for us to really fulfill the mission of making the world a better place. We needed to grow fast and we needed to do it now. And I needed to become full time and focus on this full time. So once I decided to go full time, we decided, okay, we need to start raising funds and we're in the fundraising process. We're talking to some great, um, great investors and hopefully we'll get something close here soon.
1: I wish you luck on that. I think that would be fantastic. So, So you named your four keys for doing a startup. Passionate. Obviously, you're passionate about this problem, right? That comes through loud and clear in your story. Uh, It it has the opportunity to change the world. Absolutely, it has that opportunity. It's fairly simple when you think about it, right? Uh, You're taking phone calls and getting them transcribed through automation, uh, making them searchable. So the fourth one, this pathway to profitability. What's your outlook at this point right now? Uh, without, I, I know you probably don't want to reveal your actual numbers and all that, but kind of what's your outlook on that, Corn?
0: Um, it looks really, really great. Um, you know, because when a comment, this was a comment that was made one time from someone when they looked at our price points. Right, they said two to five dollars an hour. I couldn't pay uh-huh. anyone to do that. And so when you look at it from a, from the standpoint of our, our mid tier, our pro level. It's $36,000 a year, right, for 1,500 hours a month. Mm-hmm. You couldn't pay, if you hired four people working 24-7, 365, which I just phoned out, is actually 24-7, 52, but, uh-huh. <laughs> um, but if, you, if you hired four people working every day of their lives, all day, they wouldn't be able to process as much audio as that is for $36,000, yeah. right? So the value prop is there. And you know, one of the things that I've always been you know, keen on is being frugal. Mm-hmm. We don't really spend a lot on those, the things that we shouldn't spend from an overhead perspective. And we keep things fairly lean because we know that we're working with government and we wanna keep the price as low as possible because we know that, yeah. that those funds are coming out of the community, right? Yeah, yeah. We know that we have something that we can create some profitability. We can keep it low price point. And so it looks really good for us in the future.
1: That's excellent. I love that outlook. And I, and I love the way that you've looked at the pricing on that to make sure because, hey, I'm a taxpayer too. I want good value for my money, but I also want the problem solved, right? Yeah. So I think that's a that's a great mix. I have no doubt that we have some budding entrepreneurs among our listeners. Uh, we have listeners from across the, really from across the world uh, in tech not only the tech sector, but corporate IT, and that brings them to mind for this conversation. We have a lot of listeners who are IT professionals and probably will never create a startup. Mm-hmm. And when you and I were talking a couple of weeks ago, you shared some insights that I think would be applicable for our IT pros out there. How can they use the mind of an entrepreneur to drive their businesses forward?
0: Sure. Sure. I think the first thing is that, you know, being an entrepreneur takes a little bit of uh, uh, insanity. Um, (laughs) (laughs) It takes a little bit of insanity because, you know, most businesses fail. Right. And Mm -hmm. so you have to be willing to go out there and do that. Right. So it's not for everyone. It's not for everyone to take that risk. Um, But when you look at the mindset behind it, right, if you're going to do this properly, you're going to start first with understanding the problem that you're trying to solve. And I think a lot of times, you know, in if we're really trying to make our businesses better, uh, you know, understanding the business that we're in and what is the business trying to solve, what is that problem that they're trying to solve, then working back into what is my role trying to solve within that business. You know, there's a great book um, called The Phoenix Project. Yeah, yeah, right. The Phoenix Project. I always mistake it for the Unicorn Project sometimes, right? Because um, <laughs> the same same authors. Uh, but it talks about that idea of Working towards the business objective. What are we really trying to solve? And then what is your role within that organization? And Mm -hmm. I think for every employee and for every person, figuring out that role and what you're trying to do and what you're trying to achieve for the business is going to be key. But I'm going to step all the way back before that. You're probably going to only go through the motions if you are not truly passionate about your job. Yeah. And I think that you know some of us, not all of us have this luxury, and those of us that do have this luxury have to sit back and find out what is our primary purpose? What is the thing that drives us? What is that fuel within us? And try our best, if we can, to align what we do for a living to that. For me, working, for, working in cybersecurity didn't feel like working. I mean, I've had, I've had days where I've woken up at four in the morning to talk to people in the U.K., Mm -hmm. And didn't stop working until 2 a.m. in the morning because I was talking to people in Singapore, right? Yeah. And I didn't blink an eye. I may have missed a couple of meals in there because I was (laughs) passionate about what I was doing. I was enjoying it. I was enjoying what I was doing. And that shows, right? So I think that's one of the key things that people have to look at is if you have the ability to do something you're passionate in or do something that you're passionate about, find that. The money will come. Well, it's kind of like your four keys
1: to starting a company. Passionate, change the world, simple, and pathway to a salary instead of <laughs> pathway to profitability, right? I mean, it's yeah. it's really kind of that, that same four element. I love that. Corn. one of the things that I have learned about you since, uh, I know we've been connected on, on LinkedIn for a couple of years, but I've really gotten to know you in the last couple of weeks, is you are a person of action. I can't imagine you ever sitting still and uh, taking some time off. You're a man of action. A lot of our listeners also listen to us for that action. It's in our name, Status Go. What are one or two things that you would tell our listeners that they should go do tomorrow
0: because they listened to our conversation today? I think the first thing, I'll go back to it, is that primary purpose. The idea of the primary purpose is, you know, the idea that there's something inside of you. There's We all have this core thing that we know that that we feel like, you know, some of us is protecting, some of us is nurturing, some of us is this, is that. There's something there. Find what that is within you and try to find things that align with that as much as possible. What you'll find is this. Unhappiness in our lives tend to be things that we're doing that falls away from that primary purpose. So the first thing that I think that you should do in your life is take stock of that. Find out exactly what it is that you are truly passionate about. You are truly driven about and go do it. Go find a way to do it. Go find a way to align to it, align things in your life to it. That is the first thing that I would tell anyone. um, If you're looking at doing anything in life, if you can align that, you're going to be fine. The second thing I will tell you is this is going to sound crazy. Stop caring. Stop caring about the world. Right. Um, The world is going to want to beat you up. The world is going to want to cheer you up. The world is going to want to do all kinds of different things for you. Stop caring, because at the end of the day, those influences, good or bad, don't really know your primary purposes. Mm -hmm. They don't really understand what really truly drives you. No one can ever understand you as much as you do. So stop caring about what other people are trying to get you to do or get you not to do and focus on what you want to do and what you need to do. And it's going to be difficult because let's be honest, nobody's that rich.
1: Yeah, <laughs> That's true. Corn, I, I love that advice. Find your purpose and stop caring about what other people are telling you and whatever other people think. I think that is something we can all take to heart every day. So I appreciate you sharing that. I have enjoyed our conversation tremendously. I knew I would when uh, we had the pre-call a few weeks ago. This has been tremendous. So, corn. thank you very much for joining us today. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. This has been a lot of fun, Jeff. To our listeners, if you have a question or want to learn more, go to intervision.com. The show notes will provide links and contact information, and I am sure that we'll provide a link to Chuck Lab as well if you're interested in learning more about Crime Minor. This is Jeff Tun for Cornelius George. Thank you very much for listening. You've been listening to the Status Go podcast. You can subscribe on iTunes or get more information at intervision.com. If you'd like to contribute to the conversation, find Intervision on Facebook, LinkedIn, or Twitter.